So we'll continue our study today in First and Second Samuel that we've been in all summer and studying David's life with God. This is from Second Samuel 7. Then King David went and sat in the Lord's presence. He asked, Who am I, Lord God, and of what significance is my family that you have brought me this far? But even this was too small in your eyes, Lord God. Now you have also spoken about your servant's destiny and the future and the generation to come, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own will, you've done this great thing that your servant would know it. That is why you are so great, Lord God. No one can compare to you, no God, except you just as we have always heard with our own ears. And who can compare to your people Israel? They are the one nation on earth that God redeemed as his own people, establishing his name by doing great and awesome things for them, by driving out nations and their gods before your people whom you redeemed from Israel. You established your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, Lord, became their God. Now, Lord God, confirm forever the promise you have made about your servant and his dynasty. Do as you have promised so that your name will be great forever when people say the Lord of heavenly forces is Israel's God. May your servant David's household be established before you because you, Lord of heavenly forces, Israel's God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a dynasty for him. That is why your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord God, you are truly God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. So now, willingly bless your servant's dynasty so that it might continue forever before you, because you, Lord God, have promised. Let your servant's dynasty be blessed forever by your blessing. Amen. So, the other day, Friday, and and I realize I'm opening myself up to something by sharing this story, because a lot of people um, always wonder, like, what what does a pastor do during the week? Like, as long as you're there on Sundays, that's that's like really your main job. But I can tell you, when you're pastor of a church plant you do weird things like on a Friday morning you drive to Charlotte to go to Ikea to help your kids director get some stuff to furnish the kids rooms and so on Friday I drove to Ikea and and I really kind of underestimated things because I'd never been there before I assumed that I could make a run to Ikea like drive make a run make an Ikea run and and run back but what really happened is I, I, I entered into the land of Ikea, right? <laughs> and I'll, I'll let you know, I was starving, like, inside the land of Ikea, and I didn't feel like I could get out. Um, but so right about at, like, the two-hour mark, and I was working off this list that Meg had really made really well. Um, right about the two-hour mark, I realized I was going about this whole thing all wrong. Like... I realized, and I realized maybe one of the most obvious things in the world as I was backtracking, and you know, if you've ever been there, they have like uh, arrows 
projected onto the ground. And, and this, is, this is what you do when you go to Ikea. You, you travel this map. It's like a treasure map, but there's no X's. And, and, and about, about two hours in, I realized perhaps the most obvious thing in the world is that the whole time I was holding a map and I didn't even realize it. I was just kind of blindly following and weaving and then I'd have to kind of start over when I missed something. And, and, and then like the last four items, I, I just like took all my right shortcuts and I followed my map. So this is the most obvious thing in the world and maybe the most obvious thing in the world was the whole time my key of living well in the world of Ikea, right? And so that happened Friday. Earlier in this week, I, I began studying today's scripture text, and I made a similar, similarly obvious but impactful insight. I printed out the passage like I always do, um, and I began to read through it multiple times. This is a little, uh, a little uh, kind of behind the scenes. Um, you, you know, you, you print it out, you read through it several times, you take some notes in the columns, you underline things, you try to indicate kind of big questions, pressure points, main ideas, things that you think God is speaking uh, to, to me and then to us and then to this neighborhood. Um, and so after a couple times through David's prayer in this passage, I had to pull out a pink highlighter, and I don't always do this. I started to mark all the times in this passage that David prays to God in the second person. That's when David says you or your, as if God is in the room with him. If you're curious, this is what that looks like in that passage. Like, marked up like crazy of all the times David prays you and your. And so I'm really excited about this. When you're a preacher and you find like a thread in a text that you think is important and it's important to you and it's important to you. Like you get really excited. So I went home with that thought on Monday and I, I thought it was a pretty smooth insight that, that might be important for you guys. And I was excited to share it. And so I, I started to tell Rach about this idea. And right when I left my lips, I knew how obvious it was, you know. I was basically saying, yeah, I mean, David is an amazing prayer. Like, and when he prays, he always calls God you. Like, that, that was my whole insight, you know? I think Rach looked up from helping one of the kids, and the look on her face was like, that's it? You know, like, that's the big revelation? Doesn't everyone? I know I pray that way, is what she said. And, 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 like, her look was almost like, I don't even know if you should be teaching Sunday school. You know, like, this is pretty elementary here. I remember back in a way thinking, geez, I know it's pretty obvious, but like, this is important stuff. I mean, I mean, like, a guy named Martin Buber wrote like a very big book on this. This is really important. It has to be important. But maybe it is those most obvious things that can be most important for us. It's the IKEA map or a simple language of prayer. That's the key to our ability to live well in God's world. In David's case, maybe it was just that simple directness that was, that was an overflow for David, that it was the grammar of someone who is after God's own heart. 
So a little bit of context, we'll flip back a little bit to chapter 5. We're in chapter 7. In chapter 5, here's what leads up to this sort of prayer. David solidifies his reign as the king of both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and defeats the Philistines decisively. This is kind of, for David, this is finally setting things right within and without of of his kingdom. The momentum continues to build into the next chapter as they carry God's chest. They get it back from the Philistines. And this chest represents God's presence with God's people. It's been reclaimed and it's being reinstalled as the center of David's kingdom, God in their midst. And David, needless to say, is thrilled. Chapter 6, verse 11 says, David dressed in a linen priestly vest and danced with all his strength before the Lord with shouts and trumpet blasts. Meanwhile, David's wife, Michael, who was also having to be Saul's daughter, was pretty embarrassed. Maybe she looked at David the way Rach looked at me with that insight. She was pretty embarrassed and throws shade at David's behavior in, in his own courts. I like to think that David looked something like this when he was dancing, right? It was kind of pulling a Elaine Bennis as he broke it down without any dignity before the Lord's presence. And maybe Michael was just standing to the side, like pulling a George Costanza under her breath, muttering, sweet, fancy Moses, you know? David replies to her, I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father and his entire family and who appointed me leader over the Lord's people, over Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord again. This is like kind of a burn, but it's also kind of a sorry, but I'm not sorry about this situation that's happening right here. But I think the key phrase in all of this and all of what he's doing and his explanation It's that little phrase, before the Lord. He says, I was celebrating before the Lord. In the presence of the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who made King David, and David would celebrate that king because God is there with him. God is with God's people, so David dances. I think the more aware of God's presence that David is, the greater his response of joy is. This is the sort of joy that took over his whole body. This is the sort of joy that was uncontrollable and almost involuntary for David. So it's kind of a, a caught joy more than a taught joy. This is a, a joy caught by the inf- infectious liveliness of a living God. David responds to God's presence with his whole self, all of God for all of David. And strangely enough, this makes him odd. This makes him embarrassing to Saul's daughter, who seems to have inherited Saul's kind of spiritual tone deafness. She can't hear the music that David's hearing. When is the last time that you've felt like you were in God's presence? What did it feel like to be there. I don't think this is always, David's response is always the response to God's presence. Uh, Hopefully that makes you feel better. 
Although we've had several inquiries into dance parties in the life of Oak Church. Like first it was, first it was Bradley, then it was Joe. Um, maybe we'll have a dance party eventually, like a, a David-style dance party. It'd be awesome. But it's not always the response in Scripture story. Sometimes there's fear in God's presence. That like Isaiah 6-styled feeling of coming undone where you're acutely aware of how short you fall and how much you've failed in front of an infinitely just and merciful God. And then there's that Moses feeling, and Moses kind of, kind of has this ambivalent feeling of sometimes he's taking off and sometimes he's putting on. He takes off his shoes because he's on holy ground in one instance, and he covers his face because it's glowing so much because he's encountered God in another or maybe when you are in God's presence, you have that Jacob-style wrestling and restlessness, and maybe you walk away with a limp. Or there's always that confusion when you're in God's presence, like Saul of Tarsus lying on his back wondering what in the heck just hit him. Or Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. Being in God's presence doesn't automatically lead to dancing and joy, but it does call for abandon. It calls for turning ourselves over to God. It calls for transformation. David danced before God because God had done what God said he was going to do. Deliver his people from the clutches of oppression and death and be with them. God with them. Now we find that this joy then leads to a recognition and a kind of a zeal in David. David then reasons, here I am living in a, like a cedar mansion and God is out there in, in a tent. We need to do something about it. And I really would love to affirm this impulse. I mean, David has arrived. David right now is not going to forget who got him there? Like I like to think of David as acting like the, like a first round draft pick who just wants to buy his mom the house that she could never buy for herself. David's planning for the long haul and he's he's pivoting towards stability and longevity. But God, but God through Nathan changes even David's best laid plans. Nathan reminds David, God reminds David about his presence with, with God's people in Egypt. He reminds David about how he was near to David in the fields when David was just a lowly shepherd. He reminds David that he's been in the kingdom building business long before he drafted David to join him. The Cliff Notes version is, God reminds David, I was there. I am there. I will be there. How easy is it for us to forget, like David, how present God is? How involved? Sometimes I think the way that we describe God gives us away. Something great, even something borderline miraculous happens to us and we try to describe, describe it to someone and we had a major revelation 
or a major provision that you just couldn't see coming and you can't do the math on how it happened and you try to tell someone about it and you say, that complete stranger at the table next to me offered me the job that I really needed right now and then you say, God really showed up. Like that, that's how we, we're liable to talk about this. I know what you're trying to say when you say that, but I have news for you. Someone did show up, but it wasn't God. <laughs> I think God's been there from all eternity. Or like, maybe we, we pray for our neighbors, and we pray that, that we might bring Jesus into our work situations or into some dark corner that, that we'd really love to see God do work. Newsflash, Jesus, by his spirit, has already gone ahead of us. Maybe we should pray that we either catch up to what Jesus is doing and has been doing, or that by his spirit we have eyes and ears and imaginations to be able to recognize and interpret and participate in this renewal of all the things around us, including us, that has already begun in Christ. So David gets chastened. He gets, he gets chastened for his privilege. He gets chastened for his poverty of imagination. And I think this moment is pretty deeply, um, legitimately disappointing for David. I mean, one of David's great ambitions in his life was to build a temple that would signal, like, it would have a real purpose, but it would also be the sign, the signal to Israel and to Israel's neighbors that God is present, that God is sovereign in history in a real place with a real people. That vision that David had, that want to serve God with this, was taken from him. How do you handle that kind of disappointment? Like, how do you guys handle disappointment? When you thought something should happen, especially good things, especially selfless things, and they don't happen or they don't happen how you plan, how do you handle that? How does that work when it's related to God? Especially when we do things for God, disappointment can be even more hurtful. A lot of people my age, I think, struggle with this. Or maybe it's a similar struggle when you're right out of college. Maybe you had a really rich faith life in high school or, or growing up. You felt really connected with God. You felt filled with purpose and, and mission. You thought you knew how things would be, how they should be. You always assume that 26-year-old yourself or 36-year-old you or 56-year-old you would be doing big things or big things for God maybe. That you'd be in the mission field somewhere, or that your ministry would be flourishing in obvious ways. And then you get here and you realize that it didn't work out that way, or it's not working out that way. You realize that grad school is really hard. <laughs> you realize that kids take a lot of time and attention. You realize that some of the doors that you had hoped would open are just locked. You never thought you'd still be single at this time of your life, or maybe you never thought that your marriage would be that hard, or maybe you never thought your marriage would fall apart. 
it's easy to be disappointed in how things turned out or how they are turning out. I think there's a whole other layer of disappointment when it comes to doing things for God, and David knows this. We often can't conceive that God might not want us to do that costly thing we were always willing to do for Him and His kingdom. And since we're not doing that, it seems like we've failed. Or it seems like anything else is just second rate. Let's see how David handles it. Well, he handles it by praying in a really obvious way. He takes the prophet Nathan's hasty proclamation earlier when he, he goes to Nathan and he says, I'm going to build God this awesome house. And Nathan says, sounds awesome. God's with you. He takes that seriously, though, enough, even when Nathan comes back and says, actually, you're not going to do that. But he takes the part that God is with you. He takes that so serious that it affects the way he prays. He takes God's presence serious enough for his prayers to be conversational. David prays to the second person God. David prays to the God that's close enough to call you. There's a few of these instances in this prayer. He says, you have spoken. He says, you know your servant, Lord. He says, you are so great, Lord God, no one can compare to you. You established your people Israel as your people forever, and you, Lord, became their God. You are truly God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. So, through both dancing and disappointment, David remains in God's presence. God's presence remains. David resists the temptation to disengage from God. This happens in us so easily. We drift towards praying about God as if God is distant, as, God, as if God is abstract, or even worse, our prayers become mostly about ourselves. And this was never meant to be. Uh, a, sh- a short plug, and some of you have been getting pestered with emails about this, but we're, we're doing a reading group here in a couple weeks about this book. Um, if, if you know what this is, then um, let me know on the 18th or 19th when is a better time for this. This is great for divinity students in particular. Um, but this guy, Helmut Tielicki, I think is how you say it, he points out in this little book, and he's mostly talking to theologians or incoming seminarians, because this is especially uh, a temptation for people studying God. You, you go in wanting to study God because, because you can pray like this. And then you start to learn about God, and your prayers slowly become about God and not to God. Helichi points out, Consider that the first time in the Bible when someone spoke of God in the third person, and therefore no longer with but about God, was that very moment in the garden when that question resounded, did God really say that in Genesis 3 from the snake? 
And that fact ought to make us think. We then can contrast that. Contrast talking about God with Jesus. With Jesus on the cross. Jesus, at his greatest hour of disappointment and of fear and of loneliness and disconnection with God, Jesus prays, Jesus speaks, Jesus cries out in the second person, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because even in Jesus' abandonment, even in his rejection and loneliness, Jesus takes it for granted that God is there. I think there's a hint of hope there, that God is present, that God is so close that he can hear you and he's near enough that he might answer you. So I want to make a strange suggestion. I want to make the suggestion, not that Jesus prays like David, which I think that happens a lot throughout the Gospels. When Jesus opens his mouth, he's normally speaking things from Scripture before him, and a lot of it is Psalms. Now I want to make the suggestion that David prays like Jesus. And that, so that might be a little strange. My chronology might not be lining up there. That might be like suggesting that like Shakespeare plagiarized T.S. Eliot, right? But hear me out. This sort of prayer, this sort of directness, this sort of intimacy with God and awareness of God's presence was always with the Son from eternity. David witnesses to it, and Jesus gives us the most perfect image of how that works in real life, in suffering. In David, we see in part in Jesus, we see it all. In David's prayer, we see a template. In Jesus' words and life, we meet and are met with the second person, God in flesh and blood. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and at many times and in various ways. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. That's Hebrews 1. This heir of all things makes us co-heirs with him. Grafts us in, makes us brothers and sisters, beloved sons and daughters. 1 Peter 2 says we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own belonging. That we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light which drives us back to that sort of second person kind of prayer, declaring the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This past week, I went to a Bulls game on Thursday night. And it was one of those things, I didn't even realize it until I got there, that a year prior to the day, I had brought Noah to a Bulls game. And we got a call after about an inning. It was, we were so excited, we got ballpark food, we ate about a half of a hot dog, and then we got a call from Rach, who hadn't been feeling well, and Rach on the other line said, 
that she had 105 fever and that we should come home immediately. This was a year ago. I wound up taking her to the ED and what ensued were several surgeries, nine days in the hospital to treat pretty severe kidney and blood infection and many months of recovery at home with a newborn. I found myself detaching, perhaps because it's still a little scary to think about that dark season, those fearful moments of watching this woman that I most love in the world weak and sick and dependent. But then I was driven back to this simple kind of prayer, this kind of you prayer. (laughs) I started to pray to God, you were right there a year ago when Rach was sick. You healed her body. You did that. You gave us strength and everything we needed. You provided for us. God, you gave us my parents who moved here out of the blue and we needed them. You gave us Rachel's mom who stayed with us for a month right on time. You did that. You gave me endurance and peace that surpassed my understanding. You gave Oak Church the people and the resources and the needs to make it all happen, even if it was a blur. You did that. You made that happen. You took care of Noah, and you took care of Titus, and you took care of Emmett when Rach had to be taken care of, and you strengthened us. You did that. Do you see how this sort of awareness, this sort of worship and gratitude and joy and intimacy, how it emerges from this sort of prayer that throws you right into God's presence to talk like that. It's this sort of of intimacy and this awareness and this worship and gratitude and joy that we're invited into through Jesus. Do you feel that shift? Can you receive that sort of grace that's just there for the taking? There for the living? Can Can you make that obvious change? That will help you sense and live into the Lord's presence? The Lord's presence through dancing or the Lord's presence through disappointment or change? This will help you declare those praises. It will help you recognize that darkness that you've been brought out of because it's really easy to forget how dark that dark was. All this is possible because Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in His Spirit, we're promised that He'll be with us even until the end of the age. Can you lean into that today? Like, just live in that? If you don't know that today, will, will you call out to Jesus like a friend? Will you say, you have done this. You have brought me here. I don't know what you're doing, but you're doing something and I want to be a part of it. Will you expect an answer from him? That's the thing. If someone's close enough to call you, they're close enough to respond to you. Will you know him closer than you know yourself? Can you trust him with that sort of knowledge and care that he knows you that well? to know and take care of you and to deliver you from sin and death, to meet you in your dancing 
and to meet you in your disappointment, to change your mind, to change your heart, and to renew and transform it towards His Word, towards His will. Will you see and will you be a part of this coming kingdom that's, that's just that's at hand? And pray with me. Lord, you've you've done it. You've spread a table before your enemies and you've made us friends, you've made us family, you've made us sons and daughters. Help us come to you with the dad that we trust. A dad that that won't give us something harmful when we ask, but but will give us everything we need. Lord, you've changed this world forever by giving us your son. You've done that. Lord, you've changed this world forever when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of this world. You've done that. Lord, you've changed this world forever when by your Spirit you rose, you raised Jesus from the dead. That we might see the first fruits of the new creation in our midst and we might be a part of that. You've done that. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.